All right, so Proverbs, the text today, in Proverbs, we're going to be reading Proverbs 24, sorry, Proverbs 19, verse 24, through Proverbs 20, verse 11. So the, the section um, is essentially about the process of teaching and teachers and the fool. And what's put forward here is sort of the, the way in which punishment is a teacher, the way in which teachers punish, and then the civil magistrate, in terms of the wielding of the sword and rod, has a teaching role insofar as it provides an example, and the laws themselves provide a teaching of justice. And so the decisions of courts teach what is going to be punished and what is going to be rewarded, what's going to be tolerated in a state. And so, as we look through the text, the the whole of it is about teachers and the punishment of fools. Chapter 19, verse 24, through the beginning, the first verse of chapter 20, gives us another catalog of fools and talks about the punishments associated with the kind of fools that we will see. Uh, As we move further into chapter 20, what we're going to see is verses 2 through 11 deal with a righteous king interacting with fools. And so we'll see what that kind of interaction looks like. And inside of that, there are sort of two subunits, uh, verses 2 through 8, that deal with the righteous king removing evil from his jurisdiction. And verses 9 through 11 deal with the problem of human evil limiting the extent to which justice can effectively rule. And so we're left with the problem of evil rulers. And so we consider that and see our need for Christ there. So please stand for the reading of the text. This is God's Word. Proverbs 19. And actually starting back at verse 23, so my headers are all wrong. Verse 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. He will not be visited with evil. A lazy man buries his hand in the bowl and will not so much as bring it to his mouth again. Strike a scoffer and the simple will become wary. Rebuke one who has understanding and he will discern knowledge. He who mistreats his father and chases away his mother is a son who causes shame and brings reproach. Cease listening to instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Now, that verse is, I'm going to read to you how it should better be translated. It's sarcastic. That verse, it's, cease listening to instruction, my son, in order to stray from the words of knowledge. That's the actual Hebrew, the way it goes. A worthless witness, or a disreputable witness, scorns justice, and the mouth of the wicked devours iniquity. Judgments are prepared for scoffers, and beatings for the backs of fools. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. The wrath of a king, more literally, the fear that is produced by a king's wrath, is like the roaring of a lion. 
Whoever provokes him to anger sins against his own life. It is honorable for a man to stop striving, since any fool can start a quarrel. The lazy man will not plow because of winter. He will beg during the har- during harvest and have nothing. Counsel in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Most men will proclaim each his own goodness. Loyalty is really better there. Most men will proclaim each his own loyalty, but who can find a faithful man? The righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. A king who sits on the throne of judgment scatters all evil with his eyes. Who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. Diverse weights and diverse measures, they are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Even a child is known by his deeds, whether he is whether what he does is pure and right. You may be seated. Verse 23 is an introduction to the text. Uh, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. He will not be visited with evil. So the fear of the Lord keeps you from foolishness is sort of the introductory thought, and we get into the catalog of fools. And there's an earlier verse that I have said here that it's verse 16, but it's not verse 16. There's an earlier verse that refers to being satisfied if you give to the poor. Um, And I can't find where that is, but I said it was verse 16. I'm wrong, so I'm on a roll today. Uh, Oh, here it is. It's verse 20. Nope, never mind. Just forgive me. Just ignore. There's another verse. It talks about the satisfaction that comes from doing a commandment if you find it. Great, thank you. You can tell me later. So the fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. He will not be visited with evil. We have here uh, this idea uh, that begins the section, and this proverb can be taken in an ultimate sense. He who has will be given more, and he who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. That would be the way that we see the Lord Jesus Christ talk about things. And so, if you have the fear of the Lord, you will have... Life, right? This, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is life. The knowledge of, of God is eternal life. And that life, when you have it, there's a gaining more of life. It's so that we can have life abundantly. And that increasingly gives us satisfaction and spares us from evil. And this is all true in an ultimate sense. Even when we think about being spared from evil, the evil of suffering itself is removed. Suffering becomes useful. It becomes good. It's for our good. It's for our testing and discipline. Death is a release from curse. And so death and suffering, the sting is removed from death. The evil of suffering is removed. And they become things that are used for our good. So we have an ultimate way in which the proverb is true. But there's also the general tendency. Right? In this life, if you fear the Lord, you'll live longer. That's generally what will happen. In this life, if you fear the Lord, you will generally be happier and more satisfied. In this life, generally, if you fear the Lord, you are going to avoid more harm, avoid curse. There's going to be a tendency towards a more blessed life. 
And so we have these general tendencies that we see as a proverb. Now, the fool is put afterward, all of these types of fools that we deal with in verse 24, 25, all the way down to the first verse of the next chapter, we have these types of fools and what they do and the curses that come upon them, the way in which they have a less abundant life, lives that tend to end more quickly. We see the way in which they're not satisfied, but that they're striving for satisfaction. And so, the lazy man is given to us first. The lazy man buries his hand in the bowl and will not so much as bring it to his mouth again. The rabbinical tradition and a lot of the the translations have that the the man puts his hand into his shirt or into his armpit, which I don't know what the goal is there. There's a number of interesting commentaries on it, but it's not what the text says. And so translations and commentaries having that are are odd. The the word bowl, this this word is only in uh, in the Bible like four times. And so there's a question about what it means, which is a part of the reason for the question about how to deal with it. But there's a text in 1 Kings where it is washed and turned over. And so, not armpit. And so, when we end up with it, it's possible that it could be a pot. And I actually think that the pot adds a little bit of interesting um, flavor to the proverb. Because if you think about this, the lazy man... You have the food, the food's prepared, but rather than dishing it out to look good, just sticks his hand in the pot. It's ready to eat. He can eat it. He's skipping over all of the steps to make it a nicely laid out meal. The guy's obviously a bachelor. And he sticks his hand in the pot, but he will not so much as bring it to his mouth again. Right? The cartoonish nature of this proverb is always stuck with me. Ever since a child, the image of this guy with his hand in the pot going, I'm hungry. It, it has the feel of a modern political cartoon or meme. The lazy man buries his hand in the bowl or in the pot and he will not so much as bring it to his mouth again. And, and this is, I think, a, a great way of saying starting things is easy and finishing things is hard. And the funny thing is, when we start things, you know, we're further away from the reward, but in foolishness, we kind of start things with the zeal, and we're like really excited to go do the thing. We get part way in, we maybe even get close to finishing, and then we go, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired of this. I don't want to complete the work to fruition. I don't want to actually have the completed reward. And so, lazy people are not so much just characterized by doing nothing, as they are characterized by starting things and never finishing them. There's this set of unfinished and incomplete things. So the lazy man starts projects and doesn't finish them. And I mentioned to you punishment. So where's the punishment here? The punishment here is that he does not eat of the fruit of his own work. So the proper punishment for poverty, for laziness, for the poverty that comes from laziness, is to let the lazy person be uncomfortable in the poverty. Verse 25, strike a scoffer 
and the simple will become wary. Rebuke one who has understanding, and he will discern knowledge. There's, there's a tendency when you engage with people to kind of go, well, if they're wise, they don't need to hear it. And if they're scoffers, they're not going to listen to it. So why bother? Well, first of all, the scoffer can still repent. As long as he's not dead, there's hope. But when you think about this, what's happening here is the idea that scoffing, when it's disciplined, it doesn't just have the possibility of helping the scoffer, but also the simple. And so people, you look at the the simple, and the simple benefit from seeing the just end brought to the scoffer. The discipline of the scoffer, the rod to the back of the scoffer, benefits those who are still supple, simple, learning, those who are bendable, moldable. So strike the scoffer, the hardened wicked one, and the benefit in part is the lesson that the simple learn. They become wary about the way of the fool, the scoffer. And at the same time, the one with understanding who is rebuked, if the one who has understanding does something wrong, that will also teach the simple. But you have a high degree of certainty that it's going to give an increasing discernment of knowledge to the one who has understanding. And so, discipline for wrongdoing for the wise gives more wisdom. Discipline to the scoffer for wrongdoing might bring them to repentance, but it will help those who see. And the simple, obviously, are in between there and should be given discipline. So if the wise should be disciplined and the scoffer should be disciplined, then obviously the simple or those that are in between should be disciplined. The point is that the rod is an ordinance with universal value to men of every kind. And that universal value is not just to them, but to all who see it. Verse 26, he who mistreats his father and chases away his mother is a son who causes shame and brings reproach. Cease listening to instruction, my son, in order to stray from the words of knowledge. Those kind of come together. It's a, those verses come together. So the, the verse 24 was about the sluggard. Verse 25 is about the scoffer, the simple, and the one with understanding. But the scoffer is sort of the, the focus of it and how it's worth striking even the scoffer. And verses 26 to 27 are about the son who brings shame and reproach. And so the, the son who chases away his mother and the son who mistreats his father, um, it's sort of common to think about teenagers and say, you know, teenagers are in a rebellious state. They're not going to want to listen to the parents. And it's become commonplace to kind of go, give the teenagers space. Stay away from the teenagers. That is because our culture is overrun. Overrun. With sons who bring shame. And so... We talk about how, well, why is it that it takes you know, men getting to the age of 30 or 40 to become men? It's because of the fact that we are handing people over to be discipled to the popular culture, to the public schools, to 
their companions who are fools and young. And so all of the crowds that are warned about in the rest of the book of Proverbs are the disciplers of the youth. And so what we have is sons that mistreat fathers and that chase away their mothers. These are scoffers, and the striking of them is the appropriate response. And so also, harsh, uh, sort of harsh rebuking. Verse 27 is an example of the harsh rebuking. The harsh rebuking is, oh, sure, yeah, stop listening. That's right, stop listening, that's good. That way you can get away from the instruction. That is the type of rebuke. Harsh rebuke becomes appropriate when there's a rejection of authority, when there's rebellion. Verse 28, here we have another kind of fool, a worthless witness. The word is uh, literally a witness of Belial. Okay, the word Belial um, can mean worthless. It can be used as a sort of name of a liar. It can be used as a name of a demon. Uh, there's some tradition about it being a name for Satan. I think it just spent a lot of time on that to, to check and remember which things are uh, there's a grounds for. But the, the, the root, the kind of etymological root is worthless. So the idea of a worthless witness. What's that? Sorry. No, no, sorry. So a, a, uh, a worthless witness scorns justice. So if you are a useless witness, if you're a worthless witness, your speaking is useless, and that speaking uselessly is from a hatred of justice. If you cared about justice, you would be a valuable witness who seeks to speak plainly and clearly. But someone who hates justice will be a worthless witness. And so the sign of a worthless witness is unclarity, unhelpfulness, not trying to sort through the things. And then we get to the second part of the proverb, a, 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 a worthless witness or a disreputable witness, one that contradicts themselves, known for lying, scorns justice, and the mouth of the wicked devours iniquity. The mouth of the wicked devours iniquity. The, the hatred of justice pushes it away, but the devouring of iniquity, this person, they speak worthless things so that they can bring into themselves iniquity. And so this kind of points to the idea that it's not the things that we take in in terms of food that make us evil, but it is instead what proceeds out of the heart. And so that, that is Jesus' teaching. It's interesting how much of Jesus' teaching is sort of a taking of a proverb and rewording it. So the speaking of useless words and the consuming of iniquity, the bringing iniquity into the soul. There's this, when you lie, you destroy justice in the world and you destroy the integrity of your own soul. Verse 29, judgments are prepared for scoffers and beatings for the backs of fools. So the idea that the teacher who cares about the student gaining wisdom, this is the appropriate response is a judgment for the scoffer, a beating for the back of the fool. 
Now, the verses 28 and 29 relate to each other in that what we have is the worthless witness is a scoffer. The worthless witness is a person who, who scorns justice, who devours iniquity, and so judgment is appropriate there. And what is the appropriate judgment for one who is a false witness? The appropriate judgment is eye for eye, tooth for tooth, for anything they sought to bring in terms of harm on the one they falsely bore witness against. That's the kind of criminal judgment that is deserved. And then the idea of the beating for the back of the fool. Verse 21 gives us another kind of fool, the drunkard. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whatever and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Right, so if you take in too much wine, it tends towards mockery or scoffing, as opposed to sober thinking. Taking in strong drink too much tends towards a sort of strife, as opposed to peaceableness. And so... The drunkenness is a force multiplier of sin. Drunkenness is a force multiplier of sin. It increases the mocking, and it increases the fight causing. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And so the types of fools that we get introduced to are the sluggard eating the absence of fruit of his labor. The scoffer being beaten, the type of son that rejects authority and honor, receiving harsh sarcasm back, the false witness receiving judgment and receiving beatings as a fool, and the drunk who as a mocker brings all the judgments of a mocker or scoffer on himself and as a brawler brings all of the dishonor and shame of the type of son that mistreats a father, chases away the mother, this is a brawling type of attitude. And so what we have is this collection of the types of fools that are destroyers of social order, and they destroy the capacity to be able to work together. So we get into chapter 20, verses 2 to 11, and what we see is the righteous king, and the righteous king helps to deal with the disorder of wickedness. So the king's purpose is the restraint of evil. So verse 2, the wrath of a king is like the roaring of a lion, or literally, again, the fear produced, the fear produced by the king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger sins against his own life. In other words, Would you like to die? Make a king mad. When you honor authorities, the promise of the fifth commandment is life. The curse of dishonoring legitimate authorities is death. And so there's a wrath that comes from authority that ought to be looked upon as a harbinger of death. The provocation of that anger is a foolish thing. And so the call to honor legitimate authority is a thing that helps us to have good life. And thankfully, because fools provoke authorities, it brings a quick end to their lives. And it's a good thing for us. 
It's a good thing for us. Verse 3. It is honorable for a man to stop striving, since any fool can start a quarrel. Right? If you're making a king angry, you might think, well, I can't stop the fight. I started it already. Well, one of the ways to avoid the provocation of an authority, one of the ways to not bring the wrath of an authority, is to seek to make peace. Any fool can start a fight. It is honorable for a man to stop striving. Any fool can start a quarrel. Now, this points to the fact that when we think about the catalog of fools being handed over to a righteous king, the righteous king's hatred of evil brings fear into the heart of even fools, and the restraining power of the law, the law as a chain, is brought to mind. Not heeding the lion's roar is setting yourself up to die. However, if you hear the roar of the lion and come back to your senses, the peacemaker, the peacemaker is applying skill and wisdom to end a fight. And it takes more skill and wisdom to end a fight than to start it. Now, on the other side, there's the son that brings shame. Right? So there's the one who can end a fight. But if we go back and think about the son that causes shame, verse 26, he who mistreats his father and chases away his mother is a son who causes shame and brings reproach. Causes shame for the parents, brings reproach to the parents, but also to himself. And uh, that shame partly comes from the parents. The parents shame a dishonorable son. They are going to discipline and punish, and they're even going to have to reproach harshly. Yeah, stop listening to instruction. That way you can stay away from the words of knowledge. Well done. But on the other side, when we go back down to the king, we have the other side of the coin. We have the honor of ceasing in a fight. So we, we can see somebody who is just belligerent towards authority versus the one who helps to bring about peace. Verse 4. The lazy man will not plow because of winter. He will beg during harvest and have nothing. So this relates back to the lazy man who buries his hand in the bowl. And just as the lazy man won't complete a task, the lazy man will not work when it looks hard. Here's the interesting thing. When do you think there's the most competition in a market? When it looks really easy to make money? Or when it looks hard to make money? When does it seem like it'd be good to be a farmer? At the harvest season? Or in the winter, just after harvest, furthest away from the next harvest? The fields are empty. Being a farmer, you're just going to starve. Look at these fields. They don't have any food in them at all. Working away in these fields like an idiot. Right? That's the idea that this is, oh, why would you do this? There's, there's, nothing, there's no gain here. When you work through the difficult period and work toward the harvest, the result is that you have plenty in the time of harvest. If when you're farther from the harvest, you stop working, 
you don't plow, you don't prepare, you don't do the investing, you don't take from your resources to make more money in the future, when you stop plowing back into a business, right? when you take profits and reinvest them in a business, it's called plowback. If you don't do that, if you don't take the gains and put them back in to do more, then the result is that when there's opportunity, everyone else will have things and you won't. You will beg while others reap. Now, this applies with teaching. And this applies with discipline. A lazy man will not plow because of winter. The absence of the appearance of fruit. He will beg during harvest and have nothing. Verse 5, counsel in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Now, honest counsel is the opposite of worthless witness bearing. Worthless witness bearing, you can bear witness to falsehood, right? You can bear witness against people unjustly, but honest counsel... Honest counsel, wise counsel, is hard to get, hard to find. And it requires, there's this interesting sort of paradox. Interesting to me, right? The interesting paradox is this. The fool delights to hear his own opinion. And even simple ones who remain quiet, remain quiet look wise. And so, getting the wise ones to give you their thoughts about the situation requires some effort. How many of you have learned the lesson that it's best to not give people advice about situations? That's the, it feels like that a lot of the time. And so, it takes effort to draw counsel out of the heart of a man, especially a wise man. Unless they have some sort of a sense of a commitment to you, it's going to be something where maybe I don't want to get involved as passing by somebody else's quarrel. So counsel in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. And this is one of the reasons why the fear of the Lord results in an increasing possession of the fear of the Lord. Wisdom results in an increasing possession of wisdom because the wise will seek wise counsel from the wise. And so... Counsel in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. It's pretty easy to get away from other people's advice. And getting the counsel of the wise requires some effort. So we have the wise counselor bearing true witness versus the worthless witness bearing. Verse 6, most men will proclaim each his own Goodness. But who can find a faithful man? So the word there for goodness is uh, chesed, which is normally mercy. Okay? And so you, you think about this. This word can be translated loving kindness or loyalty or covenant loyalty. Um, so the question is, which meaning is intended here? And so here's what I think the proverb is saying. And this makes it very, very straightforward. Most men claim that they are very loyal. But who can find somebody who's loyal? 
Who do you know that says, I'm not loyal? Is that thing like people put up on their Facebook pages now? Status, disloyal. So, everybody says they're loyal. Who can find a faithful person? Reliable person, a loyal person. This is in the context of the righteous king. Why, why is the righteous king concerned about this? The righteous king is looking for ways of being able to delegate power, to get stuff done. There's, there's so much to do. Remember last time we talked about how the nobles, the princes, the rich people, other people follow them to get the power, to get the money, to get the things from them. But then, at the same time, it's difficult to find somebody who is actually faithful in the discharging of a task. And so we begin to sort of think about this problem of, yeah, how can you find a faithful man? And hey, maybe that's not just a problem for kings. What if we're trying to hire a king who will watch the watchers? And so there's this problem of we can't find faithful men to serve the kings. We can't find faithful men to be the kings. And that's the whole reason we need kings, right? To punish the evil of men. The righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. What we have is there's a long-term value to integrity. Remember, going back to the worthless witness... What is the witness doing? They're lying for short-term gain, right? That's the whole idea of lying. If I lie right now, this will be better for me than if I don't lie. On the other side of this, being righteous and walking in integrity has a long-term gain. A gain that's so valuable that it crosses generations. Now, for the one who is not walking in integrity, he's going to destroy across generations. His children will be cursed. But this is the reason why you would want to take the burden of honest witness bearing. This is the reason you'd want to be honest in terms of your oaths of entering into public office. This is the reason you'd want to be faithful in a task. This is why you'd want to be a righteous king. And so verse 8, a king who sits on the throne of judgment scatters all evil with his eyes. That seems like a pretty good reward for being faithful in judgment. What are the benefits of scattering evil? Well, scattering evil when people are running, they're typically not doing other things. But also, one of the principles of war is concentration. You consolidate or concentrate power in order to effectively be able to overwhelm the enemy in a localized way. And what the king does is he scatters the enemy. He scatters the wicked. A righteous king sitting in judgment scatters evil. And so, you know, you go, you know... If we criminalize things, we can never eliminate them. That's true. You can reduce it, though, and you can drive it underground, and you can make it weaker. That's what happened with pornography and sodomy and all sorts of wickedness that existed in the land. That's what used to happen with idolatry. You can't eliminate it, but you can scatter it, and you can drive it underground. The magistrate is supposed to scatter and drive underground and terrify wickedness. And we know what things are crimes based upon what God says are crimes. And a righteous king drives criminal behavior underground and away and unconcentrated.
One of the glories of driving wickedness underground is that it makes it harder for them to concentrate. You'll watch shows now that talk about, look at how evil society used to be when it made people feel bad for their sexual perversions. They used to have to be underground, and it was hard for them to find other people with the same sexual perversions. Glory to God. Let society be that. Let wickedness scatter. And let evil behavior have a hard time finding people with whom to join hands. That is what a righteous king does. And the church gathers under the kingship of Christ and coalesces strength so that we have the advantages of concentration in spiritual warfare. A righteous king scatters wickedness and gathers together righteousness. A king who sits on the throne of judgment scatters all evil with his eyes. Just looking at the evil, the people go, uh, they run away. That terrified response, that flashing of the eyes is a sign of the wrath of that king. And the flashing of the eyes is like a roar of the lion. That is what a righteous king does. Verse 9. Who can say I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. We just had a verse that lifted us up to the exaltations of the glory of a righteous king. And then all of a sudden we're reminded again. But where will we find these righteous kings? I have made, who can say I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. Diverse weights and diverse measures, they are both alike an abomination to the Lord. This is all over the place in the Bible. We've, we've talked about this a lot, right? I've, I've used it to talk about the way that the Federal Reserve just prints money and, and it steals from people, right? You've heard this. Why does this keep coming up? Why is it right here? In the context of a king, it's this. You, O king, who judge others, do you apply the same standard to yourself? The righteous king will scatter evil. But what about his heart? Is he pure? What standard is he applying to himself? And so then there's this problem of hypocrisy and the desire to maintain the appearance of being righteous while perhaps there is rot under the robe. Even a child is known by his deeds whether what he does is pure and right? And an interesting question. Let's consider that for a second. What children do you know who are perfectly pure and right? Perhaps we could find a good teacher to set them straight. But are there any sinless teachers? Perhaps we could find a king to keep them in line. But are there any sinless kings? And so the problem of the reign of the wicked exists here. And so we're left in this place where we consider the dangers of not having teaching, of not having discipleship, of not having discipline, of not having just administration of the sword. And we're left there. And so we're called to consider the need for teachers 
discipline, and justice. And we are shown that no man born of the line of Adam by ordinary generation can save us. We are not to put our trust in princes. We are not to call other men teachers. We need a righteous teacher, a righteous king, a righteous man. So who will deliver us from this body of death? So I've given to you the Shorter Catechism as it walks through the problem of sin and misery and talks about the condition of sin. And it lays out for us question 20. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? God, having out of His mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. We can look at our own children and we can think, how can we possibly teach them what they need to be taught? We can look at anybody under our authority and ask, how can I make what is crooked straight? And we can wonder, how can I possibly exercise dominion in such a way as to rule well and wisely? But we have to look to the teacher. We have to look to the king. And we know that he reigns. And he's winning. He's making advances. And do not think that human princes will scatter evil and think that the God-man will not. He does. He scatters evil with his look. His glance terrifies Satan. Demons, when they see him, say, Have you come for the terror, for the punishment? Is this the time of torment? It's not time yet, right? Demons respond to Jesus by relieving themselves in their pants. They can't handle Jesus. They are terrified of him. He's the king. The enemies of Christ. It's true. The enemies of Christ will not prevail. So who is the redeemer of God's elect? The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. So how did he become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. What offices does he exercise as Redeemer? Prophet, priest, king. And he does that both in his humiliation and his exaltation. But which one is he in now? He's in his exaltation now. He is enthroned He's at the right hand of the Father. He has sent the Holy Spirit. He has empowered the church. The church is going forth. It is leavening the whole lump. The earth is being filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. The enemy is being drowned with the flooding of this knowledge. And we think we can't raise our own kids. We think we can't possibly do the stuff we need to do. We think we can't overcome our own flesh. That the world around us is going to beat us. That the demons can't be stopped. Let the nations rage and let the kings conspire. God laughs. Christ laughs. How does he execute the office of a prophet? He reveals to us 
by His Word and Spirit, the will of God for our salvation. How does He serve as a priest? He offered up Himself once as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, to reconcile us to God and to make continual intercession. He's doing that now. He's continually interceding for us. How does Christ execute the office of a king? He subdues us to himself. He subdues us to himself. Can you say, I've made my heart clean? No, but Jesus is cleansing your heart. Can you say, I am pure from my sin? No, but Jesus has paid for all of your sins. Christ is subduing you to him. He rules you. He defends you. He restrains all of your enemies. And He conquers all of your enemies because they're His. Christ did this in His humiliation. He was put under the law. He suffered the miseries of this life. He took the penalty due for the wrath of God for sin by taking the curse and the cursed death of the cross. He was buried and he continued under the power of death for a time. And he did that. And his sacrifice was accepted. He was raised the third day. He ascended into heaven. He is sitting now at the right hand of the Father. And he will come to judge the world at the last day. He is scattering his enemies now. He will scatter and break their strength in an ultimate and complete way when He returns. He is subduing them under our feet. And we are kings, friends. Do you think He has given you power to scatter evil? Let's pray and then we'll ask for comments and questions. Father, I ask that You would give us a high view of our King. You would cause us to not despair to not trust that we needed to teach perfectly and rebuke perfectly and use the rod perfectly and order everything perfectly and to then think because we didn't or because we aren't now that nothing good can come. Father, we thank You that Jesus Christ is the perfect King and that He is the Redeemer of Your elect. And we ask that You would give us strength to pray and to speak and to use the rod, that You would give us strength to order and exercise dominion, We pray that you would give us good and godly elders and deacons and good and godly magistrates and that you would cause the coalescing and the gathering of the church to work together to overcome the world. And we know you will do these things. And seeing the darkness that surrounds us, we wait with eager expectation at the glories that you will work for the glory of your Son. Amen. Amen. Comments, questions, objections the voting members and those with speaking rights.